everyone. Welcome to Conservation Chronicles. This is Jonah, and joining me today is Camden Martin, who's been a uh, guest host on the past, because Mariana is not with me today. How are you doing, Camden? I'm doing well. Happy to be back on the podcast with you. Um, yeah, it's been a while since... It has been a while. I think it's been so, a couple months here. Yeah, probably back in summer, I almost want to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyways, well, we, instead of doing like a specific topic today, like we normally do, we're going to cover some news stories, um, because there's, I mean, there's always a lot of news out there that is interesting, but, um, all of a sudden there's just a lot of interesting stuff that we want to talk about. And then there's some things that we've highlighted in the past, like news, news wise, that we've never really followed up with. And so we realized, oh, maybe we should talk about some of this stuff that, you know, we were, we told listeners we were going to follow. Um, so because of all that, we, we want to just have this whole episode be dedicated to, to some interesting news pieces. Um, so I think we could just get started. Yeah, let's do it. Um, okay. So, Obviously, I'm a plastic Nazi, and we talk. We've talked a lot about plastic in past episodes. And um, if you haven't, you should go back and listen to one of our first episodes that Marianne and I did. Um, I think it's episode number three, called "Plastic Planet," where we just talked a lot about the issue of plastic, um, or the, just rather the plastic crisis in the world today. And, and we talked about a lot of plastic news back then because there was some, um, legislation that was pending in, in Europe that was going to ban single use plastic. And so just wanted to start off with a follow-up to this. And this is, again, we let this slip through the cracks because, um, I, we just weren't paying attention or whatever. But um, earlier this year in March, the European Parliament actually approved a law banning single-use plastic by 2021. And so, if you remember our plastic episode, there was talks about this happening back then in, in 2018. And so, earlier this year, it, it actually happened. And so, in addition to just banning single-use plastic, which... There's particular single-use plastic like straws and cutlery and, and stirs and things like that. Um, but they also set a goal to reach 90% uh, recycle rate of plastic bottles by 2029 um, because currently in the EU, there's less than 30% of all plastic that gets recycled. So again, we talked about this in our episode back then, the statistics on recycling are are pretty uh, pathetic. And I mean, but, but the European Union's ahead of us here in the United States, because yeah, I was going to say, yeah. if, if the European Union's at 30%, yeah. less than 30, can you imagine what it is here? Well, it's 10%, <laughs> less than 10% of all plastic oh, yeah. gets recycled here in the United States, which is pitiful. Um, mm. So again, they're ahead of us in most regards. Um, but another interesting thing is that this law also 
will require require tobacco companies to bear the financial burden of cleaning up cigarette butts and other smoking-related filters, whatever those are. I guess there's some made out of plastic. Um, And then also manufacturers of fishing gear will be responsible for cleaning up nets and fishing line and other um, debris like that found at sea. And so rather than um, strictly holding you know, the taxpayers responsible for this. Of course, the taxpayers are the consumers that are producing this waste, but um, it's putting, you know, the root of this issue on the manufacturers that are producing this waste. And so that's, that's a, I think, a good step and also is reminiscent of something we talked about back in that plastic episode. Um, there's a guy named Ted Siegler who proposed this really creative idea where he suggested that we put a one cent tax on every pound of plastic resin that's manufactured. So again, that's putting a burden on the manufacturers who are producing this stuff. And just by doing a one cent tax, it's going to raise what he estimated $6 billion annually, which could be put towards financing waste management. And so that's this idea of, um, requiring these manufacturers to, to do this cleanup as sort of a step towards that. It's not as ideal as this tax idea, but it's, again, the EU is, is making headway with this kind of issue. Um, and then, earlier this year as well, the United Kingdom, um, they passed some legislation to ban certain single-use plastics, particularly plastic straws, stirs, and cotton swabs, um, beginning in April 2020. And so here in a few months, this is going to go into effect. So that's pretty awesome. Um, again, they're ahead of us. And this legislation, actually not this piece of legislation, that passed. There's also pending legislation for a tax on plastic packaging that contains less than 30% of recycled plastic. So here that would basically provide more of an incentive because I guess there already isn't enough to recycle plastic and it would make manufacturers have to use more recycled plastic because there's so much plastic that's out there. Even the plastic that gets recycled, it doesn't actually go towards um, products that are, um, what am I trying to say? Plastic isn't always being recycled in a uh, responsible way, I guess. Right. I mean, look here, you know, North America now, since, you know, China's no longer buying the recycling, it's just kind of stockpiling right now. Yeah. And that's kind of the next piece of news that I wanted to talk about, um, which we, we may have mentioned in the podcast in the past, but like Camden just alluded to, um, about two years ago, China stopped buying plastic waste from other countries. Um, And that was an issue for these countries like the United States, because what were we supposed to do with all our plastic waste now? And China, you know, they would buy this recycling and they would, or they would buy this plastic waste, they would recycle it and then make all the plastic stuff that they do. And, but now they, you know, they produce enough of their own plastic waste that they can, 
they have enough internally. And it was just too expensive for them to keep cleaning all the plastic waste that we would send them because, you know, yeah, people no just one respects it. Yeah. yeah, people just throw plastic containers full of food into the recycling bin and it's was just costly for them to clean it. And so they they stopped importing uh other countries' plastics and at the time when that happened it was there was a huge buildup of plastic waste you know on docks in the United States and Europe where it was just piling up because this plastic waste had nowhere to go so with that kind of as a backdrop earlier this year in May 2019 187 countries agreed to include mixed plastic scrap as part of the Basel or Basel I'm not sure Basel convention um, which is an international treaty controlling international import and export of hazardous materials. So plastic, according to these 187 countries, is now going to be considered a hazardous material. 187 countries, that's almost all the countries in the world. Except? Except the United States. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. We, we like to whatever celebrate how progressive we are but we can't even get on board with this it's like just denying that plastic is even an issue um and so under this treaty exporters are required to receive permission from the government wherever that waste is being exported to and so if you know we wanted or if whatever country wanted to ship their plastic waste to Thailand, for example, before we sent it there, the government of Thailand would have to approve that import. And this just is a way to control movement in a responsible way and keep track of it. But this effort was particularly made to prevent this continued accumulation of plastic in developing nations. So after China banned the import of plastic from other countries, it built up for a while, but then everyone started sending it to these other um, Asian countries like Thailand, uh, Vietnam, India, you know, countries that we talked about in our plastic episode that have a huge, I mean, they're the plastic crisis going on there is, is a humanitarian issue. Yeah, and that's probably where it's the most evident amongst other maybe equatorial countries across the world. It's where you're actually seeing it on the beaches and, you know, in your ocean and whatnot. Whereas, you know, if you take the example of where I'm from in Maine, you're not going to go and you're not going to see plastic pile up anywhere. It's hidden kind of, if you will. Yeah. And it it's just exacerbated because we, everyone else in the world is sending our plastic to them. Yeah. And so after China, now these countries are receiving more and it's just unmanageable amounts and actually even after china banned it and then you know these asian countries were just receiving a ton they even stopped importing some for a time just so they could be like whoa we need to manage what we're getting right now we just don't have this capacity um and interestingly just as a side note this policy of china's to not import other countries' plastic, it's estimated that by 2030, this policy is expected to have displaced 120 million tons of recyclable plastic, meaning it's not going to China, so it's going somewhere else, whether it's 
to another country or just into a landfill. Um, oh my gosh, it's so discouraging. I know, I know. And it's the fact that the United States was against this treaty and didn't wasn't part of this part didn't ratify this amendment to add plastic as hazardous waste is really concerning. Um, they think, you know, representatives said that they don't, they think that these regulations are um, going to be less effective because they're binding than just having voluntary measures where you have to do this. But when you have voluntary measures, I mean, especially the United States, you think we're really going to do this kind of things if we don't, we, we clearly don't care enough as demonstrated by other um, stances we've taken. Like we talked about in our plastic episode where we backed out of this convention on ocean pollution and plastic. So, you know, actions speak louder than words and having just voluntary measures, it's not going to hold anyone accountable. And also by us not being a, a part of this amendment, it may actually prevent us from being able to sell to other countries because we're not part of this regulatory process. And I mean, I re- even I remember when China did this, like all of a sudden in places where I was living, it it became increasingly difficult to find somewhere you could recycle. Like in North Dakota, the only thing you could recycle was aluminum cans. I couldn't find anywhere to recycle plastic bottles. I kept oh, all wow. of my plastic bottles until I left North Dakota and took them back to California because I'm just like that. But the fact that it's that difficult to recycle just because we don't have somewhere to throw our trash, you know, out of sight, out of mind to some other country was pretty disturbing. And it should have been a wake up call so that we figure out ways to recycle our own plastic. But we just, we don't operate that way. We don't want to deal with our own waste. We'd rather put a bandage on things just like we do with everything Everything else in society. But, um, and then just lastly about this story, um, there were some, some companies that deal with plastic recycling. They were actually outspoken against this amendment because they say that it's an administrative burden that's going to hamper the ability of countries to recycle plastic, which like I said, is likely to be the case in the United States and which already is as it just becomes more difficult to recycle. Like where I live, you can you ha- can have trash picked up in a trash can, but you can't. They don't offer recycling bins. Really, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I go and I go because of who I am. I go and take the plastic. I go find a place and take it in myself. But the average American, it's a it's a burden to have to spend fifteen minutes doing that and sorting it out of facility, and so stuff just doesn't get recycled, and it's. It's truly a, a tragedy. So anyways, that's my plastic soapbox. And that's just an update, a follow-up to stuff we've talked about in the past um, that we missed earlier this year. Alrighty, so let's get into some more, you know, a little bit lighter uh, news here. <laughs> so um, the famous giant panda cub, Bebe, is now leaving the National Zoo in D.C. for China. Um, so this is, you know, this is pretty big. Um, I believe this is news as of uh, the 18th. 
Um, so this is all part of um, an exchange and breed program between the National Zoo and the Child uh, China Wildlife and Conservation Association. Um, so baby's parents... Uh, will be remaining at the zoo in Washington, you know, because the idea is breeding efforts still to this day have been spotty. So, you know, we're going to try to keep, it seems to be working between these two. Let's keep it going kind of thing. Um, you know, it's definitely really difficult to breed pandas successfully in captivity. So, you know, the fact that they worked before, it could maybe happen in the future. Um, and, you know, the whole idea, of course, behind this exchange is really to encourage, you know, genetic variability. Uh, you know, you want to you know, be mixing, you know, different populations together. So therefore mixing, you know, different pandas together, of course, is going to be huge. Um, so in, on top of that, you know, um, is, is it easy as it might sound to, you know, just send a, a baby giant panda over to China? It's a real big effort and it requires a lot of coordination and it relies a lot of international cooperation. And so um, as, you know, minute as this might come across, it's a really big deal and it's an ex excellent example of international cooperation. Uh specifically in regards to conservation planning. Um, so if you are interested in, you know, look, learning a little bit more about it, um, uh, you know, either the, you know, the article talking about it from the Washington Post, you know, we'll have that in the description. And if you're also, you know, more interested in learning about uh, giant pandas at the National Zoo, you're more than welcome to visit their website. Um, Bay Bay, is that like baby panda, Bay Bay? Bay Bay, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it probably I, means something. I came to my head, but I was like, I'm not sure. Should I say something or? <laughs> um, I can't find. I'm googling right. I don't know what it means, but I'm sure it means something. It's not like baby. <laughs> yeah, it's not pronunciation of baby. Um, yeah, I'm sure it means something. And so, in other news, uh, there's some new in, in terms on in New Mexico. Actually, not Mexico, in the, the, the country of Mexico. <laughs> um, there's a couple new NGOs in Mexico that have acquired an 1,800-acre uh, cattle ranch um, in the Chihuahuan Desert, so in the state of Chihuahua, which is, you know, just uh, along the border with the United States. And the idea is to turn it into a wild refuge and um, wildlife refuge. And this is also really huge. Um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, already in Chihuahua, I don't know how big it is. There is the Hanos uh, Biosphere Reserve that was, I think that was what with the, that was with the Conservation Society, what is 2010, 12? What do you think, Jonah? I forget. I, the, I know the Nature Conservancy was involved in yeah. that. Um I'd have to look it up. I have the magazine over here, but yeah, um, and it was all about reintroducing um, bison, you know, to the northern prairies of Mexico. And you know, a lot of times we don't think of you know Mexico as having bison, but you know, that was definitely a population that was there was wiped out. Um, and I believe it's a semi captivity situation they're not completely wild uh, or at least in the wild um, so this is also a huge you know this is a great deal and we're very you know i'm really happy to learn you know and find out about this um, so eighteen thousand acres that's you know that's not something small and so the there's another one known as Rachel again um which aboots a biosphere reserve managed by the Mexican government. Um, within the area, there's about 200 bird species. 
so many mammal species, um, many like about 50 or so reptile and amphibian species, um, including species like the Bolson tortoise, uh, which is a critically endangered species. So, you know, a parts of land, you know, being set aside for wild refugee, you know, re wild refugee is, you know, is a huge, huge deal. So it's, you know, um, it's a real great example of an NGO success. Once again, we were talking about, you know, with coordination, um, it's not easy, logistically not easy. So this is a huge deal. And uh, they, actually, they actually expect uh, to become an example of NGO and government co cooperation in conservation, you know, an example to follow. Um, and so the whole idea is, you know, of course, protecting habitat in northern Mexico, uh, critical for species affected by, you know, social political strife uh, along the border area. You know, it's a, you know, there's a lot of issues. Um, and of course... There's, you know, issues for animals being able to go back and forth between, you know, the United States and Mexico because obviously in, you know, wildlife's eyes, there's no such thing as borders. You go where you can and where you need to go. Um, and so it's really key in protecting whatever spaces um, in those areas. Awesome. Um, actually, one of the NGOs that is involved in um, turning that ranch into a wildlife refuge is global wildlife conservation and they are actually involved in the next story that i want to talk about um so two years ago that organization global wildlife conservation launched this program called the search for lost species initiative which is a project that's aimed at creating uh sort of creating closure if you will about 1200 animal and plant species that have gone missing to science and so they're basically organizing expeditions to try to find these or confirm if they really are extinct and part of this initiative was also creating this list called the 25 most wanted lost species and this just launched in i think 2017 and Already, since these expeditions have, this initiative and these expeditions have gone out, they've already rediscovered five of those 25 most lost species. Um, and one of them that just was announced recently was the silverback chevrotain or Vietnam mouse deer. Uh, it is actually not a deer. Their chevrotains are in their own family. Um, you should definitely look up what they look like, they're called mouse deer because they're very tiny. Their size. Like, yeah. you know, almost rabbit size, and they sort of look like a deer. Um, and the silverback chevrotain really hasn't been uh, seen in over 30 years. Partic probably, well, it was thought actually more than that. So just to give some background, um, it is endemic to Vietnam, and it was actually only described to science in 1910 from four specimens. And that's all we had. And the species was never scientifically observed again until 1990, when a fifth specimen was collected, but a lot of scientists doubted its this specimen's validity because they thought by then it was already extinct in the wild. So to a lot of people, this species hadn't been seen or described or whatever since 1910 because they didn't think the 1990 specimen was was legit um but as part of this initiative the search for lost species 
Um, there was some camera trapping work in Vietnam trying to determine whether this species still persisted there. Um, it was a really collaborative project from a lot of different organizations, and they captured the first ever photos of the silverback chevrotain um, and confirmed that it still persists in Vietnam. So now people in hindsight are like, okay, maybe that 1990 specimen was legit. So it really hadn't been seen in 30 years, but to a lot of other people, it was lost uh, long before that. And so this is really cool, um, obviously, because it's not every day that a, a mammal gets rediscovered. And what's also interesting is that this part of Asia, Southeast Asia, is sort of a hot spot for lost and discovered forest ungulate yeah. species. And Camden and I are both really into this. Um, just to give I was, you, I mean, usually when you start talking about thinking of cupre, yeah, cupre is, is one of them. Um, it's, that's a type of forest ox that was actually only described in 1937 from Cambodia, but it hasn't been confirmed since 1970. And some say it wasn't, you know, some aren't sure whether or not it was actually a wild species or some sort of, you know, hybridized, you know, domestic and wild cow, you know, there's a lot of missing evidence, you know, a lot of missing information about it. Yeah, and but still, it's considered. It's not actually considered officially extinct. It's considered critically endangered, um, even though a lot of people think it's extinct. But it's it is one of the species that's listed um, on the Search for Lost Species initiative. And so I don't know the specifics of like expeditions that are trying to locate that, but it is part of this project. Um, and then you had the Schomburgs. Yeah. deer which was thought to have gone extinct in 1938 um but a lot of people believed it still persists persisted or persists in Laos um and actually just like two months ago a paper came out that analyzed a photograph from 1991 of antler sheds found in Laos and they concluded that they were from Schomburg's deer, which means that they persisted until 1991. And so there's still, there's just this mystery about them. Um, and then finally, in 1994, the Saola and the giant muntjac, which are yeah. other unglets that are very unique that you should look up, were first discovered and described in Vietnam. But they're still like really mysterious. Like we don't know. Yeah, the Saola Anything was what, population. in the 90s that they discovered it? 1994, both the Saola yeah. and the giant muntjac, uh, George Schaller was in, involved in that. So anyways, the point is that we can just add the silverback chevrotain to this list. Well, it's not as mysterious anymore. I mean, of course, we don't know anything about it, but it still exists. And this this initiative confirmed it. And it's amazing that this <laughs> initiative only launched two years ago and they've already rediscovered one of the top 25 species and it's it's a mammal um so that's i mean all the other species are exciting too but like i said it's not every day that a mammal gets rediscovered you know yeah it's definitely not every day <laughs> yeah um what else did i have in mind well let's get let's stay in southeast asia right now um unfortunately with some good news here comes some bad news uh, for those who listen, I'm sure you guys already heard about it. If you, it's kind of some big news. Um, so Malaysia, 
Uh, just last its loss, Sumatran Rhino, and that, thus leaving Indonesia as the final refuge. And that also means it's the last rhino, you know, there's no more rhinos in South, like mainland Southeast Asia. So no longer Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Vietnam, Cambodia, or Laos. Um, because, you know, within in the last 20 years, there used to be a Javan rhino population within Vietnam. Um, there was, you know, wild Sumatran rhino in Malaysia, but now there's none left, only leaving it into Indonesia. So really a, you know, really big deal. You know, this is pretty scary stuff um so like i said iman the last rhino was you know left you know died uh with a long basically died because of natural causes i believe it was part of a um it was like a long battle with the uterine tumors so i believe she was suffering to a degree i think she was dealing with a lot of blood loss and whatnot um and so I was just mentioning you, you know, within 20 years ago, the last wild, you know, um, when I say wild, I mean, you know, found in the wild, um, Sumatra Royal was back in 2015, so not too, too long ago. Um, so this is, you know, this is been the trend with Javan and Sumatra rhinos. Unfortunately, they're, you know, they're dying off and there's really been very little good news in the last 20 years or so. Um, so it's believed that she was about 25 years old when she passed away. I don't think they know exactly when she was born, but I think she was estimated at 25 years old. Um, she died in the Malaysian Bornean state of Sabah. So that's actually not mainland um, Malaysia, if you will. That's part of the, the where the border, the, it's on the border with Borneo, if you will, and the, you know, with the, the Borneo state of Indonesia. Um, what else did I want to mention about that? Um, you know, everything was done, you know, one could say, you know, why was anything done to, you know, make her conditions go away? Um, you know, she was given the best care and attention possible since her capture in March of 2014. Um, there was really nothing additional that could have been done. Um, uh, you know, it's actually, it's really in the last few days before she passed away that things really began to deteriorate. I mean, before I think she was doing okay, but... Like I said, in the last few days, it really was getting worse, and it just kind of happened right away. I think I remember seeing the um, one of the, the the news, like, oh, you know, Montel's not doing so well, and then like a day or two later, you know, she passed away. Um, so this is, you know, this is a really big deal. Um, what else I want to mention about that? So, as they do with previous uh, captive rhinos that have passed away in Malaysia, um, all of who which died of illness uh, without, unfortunately, never being able to, you know, manage to breed them in captivity, um, the conservationists, how have, however, have in fact stored cell cultures from Iman. Uh, they hope that when the technology is in place, um, these cells could be eventually turned into viable embryos and transplanted into a surrogate rhino. Who's to say? Um, they also do plan on preserving um, her body and um, putting on an exhibition in the Sabah Museum. Uh, that's according to state's wildlife department. The last male rhino, however, in Malaysia died earlier this year from old age. Um, you know, these attempts in order to kind of get them to reproduce, you know, failed. There's really a lot of limited, there's really limited knowledge about Sumatran rhinos and, you know, how their reproductive physiology and converting cells and whatnot, how it works. I believe that's kind of, unfortunately, people's best hope right now. I know that they're doing the same thing with uh, Javan rhinos. 
So, you know, you know a situation is really bad when you're just counting on hopefully in the future that there's technology that's going to be able to bring them back. <laughs> um, that's not something you want to put your stock into. But unfortunately, we're kind of getting to that point. I think there's only, um, yeah, there's a couple of population places left in Borneo. Um, I, I'm not sure if actually on the island that gives its name, Sumatra, if there's actually still wild um, uh, Sumatran rhinos. Do you know, Jonah? I don't think so. Earlier no, I this, think they're less than Borneo. Earlier this year, I think um, if if listeners want to learn more details about this, Manka Bay had a really good like series of articles about the Sumatran rhino, particularly the saga of trying to captive breed them, which started in the nineties, and basically how it's just been a failure. Like Camden said, like they haven't really gotten anywhere with it because. They're just difficult. They a lot of them have died, and it's it's kind of an interesting. It's sort of like the opposite story of a lot of these like positive zoo uh, successes you hear about. Like a lot of people think that taking Sumatran rhinos into captivity actually made it worse. Like we killed more rhinos by doing that. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm not they sure actually, if they're yeah, they were, Sumatra, you so. know, capturing and hoping that, you know, kind of hoping and keeping them in semi-natural conditions that they would be able to breed. Um, I believe that, you know, it was a plan developed for Indonesia in 2017. Um, it was kind of based on the Sumatran rhino sanctuary, which is in Sumatra in the Kambas National Park. You know, once again, it's not, you know, wild population, but like, as you said, um, well, there's kind of, you know, it's two options. Either they're getting poached and, uh, you know, you kind of want to have them in more secure situations, but at the same time, they're not breeding. It's it's a really difficult situation. It's kind of in between a rock and a hard place right at this point now. You know, they're, like you said, they're very difficult animals uh, to get them to breed. And the fact that they're in the wild, the fact that they're so fractured and their population is so small, that's kind of besides poaching or anything like that is the major things that are looming on them in terms of facing extinction at this point. Yeah. And again, I think if people are more interested in this, they should look at the Manga Bay um, articles because they also talk about like how much money has been spent in the past 25 years and it's accomplished nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I mean it's not unique to the Sumatran rhino but it's it's just such a um a charismatic devastating yeah yeah animal that it's yeah is pretty devastating. I think there's only 80 left or so in the, in the planet so I mean that's yeah. those in sanctuaries and those who are in the wild so it's it's a really horrible situation. I was fortunate enough a few years ago to see one at the Cincinnati Zoo before they they don't they're not there anymore because they pulled them all out of um, captive facilities outside their native range. But I got to see one like a year or two before it left. Oh wow! I didn't realize you did. That's pretty cool. Did yeah. you see all the fur and whatnot on it? Yeah, they're weird. Yeah. They're weird animals. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. cool. Well, moving on to more captive animal death. And (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so I I think it was earlier this spring um, in one of the short-lived newsflash episodes that I did, I talked about what was called the Russian whale jail, which was this holding facility that was discovered about a year ago in Russia. It was a holding facility that had 
beluga whales and orcas that were destined to be exported to aquariums in China. And this drone footage discovered that 87 belugas and 11 orcas were being held in these super cramped pens um, in Arctic conditions and their health was declining and it was just a, a bad situation. And, uh, from an animal welfare perspective, especially. And so this investigation launch, I mean, Vladimir Putin even stepped in and was like, someone needs to, (laughs) this is not okay. This is not okay. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, in April, so again, this is a little late, but in April, it was decided that the whales would be released back in the wild. And so they slowly started doing it. Um, but then in June, a Russian court determined that the whales were actually captured, captured illegally. Um, and they violated certain fisheries laws. And so a couple, a couple of the companies that were involved received huge fines. So a company called Oceanarium DV was fined the equivalent of nearly $900,000. And then another white whale company um, was fined nearly $500,000. And of course, they're appealing those. Um, But I mean, that's a lot of money, but I'd be curious how much they were going to sell each whale for, because I imagine like an orca would sell for like a million dollars. Um, so oh, are you looking to go into selling the orca business here, Jonah? No, I'm thinking no. they should have been <laughs> fined how much they were expecting to know. profit. Cause yeah. I just don't see $900,000 enough for these perverse kind of companies. But anyways, so, so the, the whole point of this story that was just recent is that, you know, over the past six months, these whales have been slowly being released and one of the issues when this was first decided was, okay, well, how are we going to do this? Because these whales are in poor condition. There's not funding to like, you know, take them and rehabilitate them somewhere. Where's that kind of money going to come from? Um, so the orcas were returned to the area that they were actually captured, um, which is, you know, ideal. Um, but the belugas were released near the holding facility and it's not in their natural range. It's not a place where belugas are found. So that's obviously problematic. Um, it's not like it's in the tropics, you know, it's still Arctic up there, (laughs) but you know, part of this is because (laughs) there was 87 belugas. (laughs) What do you do with 87 belugas? Again, where is money going to come from for transporting these? There also just not enough ships, that are available, like where you're just going to get ships to take them back to the Arctic. Um, And so it's not like the Russian government decided this on their own. There was some conservation organizations involved or animal welfare or whatever they do that were involved that were advising on this process. And basically, you know, because of these limitations, they decided, okay, well, we'll release them here. It's not ideal, but we'll be able to follow them and, you know, see how they are recovering. Um, And so, you know, that's what's happening. They've been able to follow them. They're still, they've moved like something like 25 miles, I think. Um, But they've been able to follow the the belugas and, you know, they're still all there. So that's good. Um, But it's just kind of a weird thing where, you know, like 
in a hundred years, people are going to, there's going to be like this new, maybe there'll be this like new beluga population and people will be like, where did these belugas come from? And then it's like this <laughs> story where they were planted because of Vladimir Putin. <laughs> um, so anyways, that's just um, sort of some closure to that story because um, yeah, f- again, I, I don't think complete justice has been served in the penalty for these companies. If they're appealing it. I That's uh, probably going to go nowhere. But yeah, at least the whales are out there, whether they're in their native area or not. At least they're back in the wild. And um, yeah, they just don't belong in captivity, people. Cetaceans no. don't. Um, what else did I have? So, Oh, speaking of getting out of captivity um, into, into their natural range. This is just like uh, flowing. These stories are flowing so well. I know. It's like, <laughs> wow. It's like we almost did our homework. <laughs> and we did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so some really cool news, uh, kind of nerding out here. I mean, we nerd on, on all of this stuff because, you know, we just love wildlife, but in particular here with going back to rare ungulates, um, this is some big news, although I don't think it's covered in a lot of major things. Um, this is news coming out of Morocco. Uh, the If you're familiar with the Adex and scimitar oryx species, they're uh, very rare species. The scimitar oryx, uh, what would you say the status is now? It's still considered extinct in the wild besides the Endeavor and in Chad, Chad, right? Yeah, yeah. I think they're still not completely wild yet. I mean, they're still not in wild, 100% wild conditions, if I'm not mistaken, the scimitar oryx and Chad. Because I haven't seen it changed. You know, every time I look at it, I still see them as extinct in the wild. But they're yeah, has, you know, officially for, by the IUCN, they're still extinct in the wild, but they are definitely wild. There's yes. herds that are wild there now. Yes, this is true. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, for those who are interested, check out um, that information. I think the best organization in order to find out information about Saharan and Sahelian conservation is uh, Sahara Conservation Fund. Uh, you'll find a lot of interesting information. This is actually where I found this article. Um, so going back to, so this was on the 28th, just a couple days ago. Um, this was a plan that was done by uh, Water and Forest Department of Morocco, so part of their environment, the equivalent of their environmental ministry, if you will, um, actually released 20 scimitar orcs and 20 addicts on 26th and the 27th um, into the, the provinces of Boujadour and Esmara. They were actually species that were, once again, kind of in these semi-captivity situations in the national park of Sousmassa, which is close to the city of Agadir, not too far from the coast of, um, you know, on the coast of the Atlantic. I believe it's one of the national parks that has the black ibis there, the black bald ibis. Um, you can go and see them there. And anyways, so um, they were actually released into, complete, you know, wild conditions. Uh, they were released at two different stations. Uh, the first station is uh, Tumukarin, in Bujdur, uh, uh, it's actually about 600 hectares. Um, and once again, the idea is, you know, uh, the objective is to increase the population of scimitar oryx and as well as the red-necked uh, ostrich in their historical range. Um, and then the other situ- uh, situ- uh, station was the Lajerouat station, Esmera, which also is about 600 hectares uh, for increasing addicts and red, uh, red-necked uh, ostrich. And so I think they're they're 
in the southern portion of Morocco, so we're getting into the type of kind of um, you know acacia steppe desert desertic steppe kind of uh, you know it's not complete desert yet, if you will. Um, and that's where they've been released. So this is a big deal. I mean, uh, there's, uh, I think the only country that has wild addicts in complete wild or recognizes complete wild conditions is Niger. And that at this point is really dwindling. Um, so this think, is a big, I think, man, like la- in the last year or two, they did an aerial survey and they couldn't find any, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so they're I like, think that's kind of what they're I probably saw. extinct in the wild. Yeah, so this is a big deal uh, for, you know, addicts. And that's why I was kind of surprised that I only saw, like, one article about it. Like, this is really big news. Um, and they're really, I mean, if you're not familiar with an addicts or with a scimitar lyrics, please go look them out, look at them. I actually had the chance of seeing an addicts when I was in, uh, uh, there was a zoo, actually, a, a zoo you can go for free right out of the city of Montpellier in southern France. I go there for free all the time and just walk around. And then you see, uh, there's a, they have a bunch of addicts. They're really neat species. They're actually a species that range from Morocco all the into Egypt, and some say that it even ranged all the way into Palestine, um, you know, in, in Roman times. So, you know, a very large uh, range and now have been greatly reduced, um, of course, because of poaching and whatnot. Uh, so this is this is pretty cool stuff, and it's really neat as well, the scimitar oryx. Um, and so, you know, the whole idea is really, you know, reinforcing the networks of reserves for Saharan fauna across the south of Morocco, uh, south of Morocco. Um, and, you know, so this is hopefully a pattern that will be able to, you know, the idea is, you know, the species are kind of kept in these semi-wild conditions in some national parks. And after that, when there's enough population that they'll be able to reduce them into these uh, wild circumstances, which is huge. Uh, other species, you know, part of this endeavor are, like I mentioned, the red, uh, the red-necked um, ostrich and as well as the Dama Moor gazelle that are also part of those initiatives. Amongst other, you know, gazelle species, you have Clyte Quiver gazelle. Um, what else the other species of gazelle you have in the area? Dorcas. Dorcas, yeah, Dorcas gazelle as well. So, um, you know, it's pretty pretty neat. I was really, really happy uh, when I read that. How about you, Jonah? Yeah, that's it's it's super exciting. And like you said, it's, um, it's pretty uh, bothersome that, like, the British royals are in the headlines more than this kind of stuff. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like we're so yeah, we're like, we are so pathetic. Like yeah. the things that we consider news. I know. It's it's tragic. Um, such and such celebrity opens bags of chip. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's basically what it's come to. Yeah, exactly. And this is yeah, this is just huge, um, especially following the. Uh, reintroduction of scimitar horned oryx in Chad, like we were uh, briefly talking about, that happened a couple of years ago. Uh, we talk, we always talk about the most obscure to some people, some listeners. Like we must talk about the most obscure animal because <laughs> yeah. we're always like, you have to go look it up because it's really cool. Yeah. You have to go look it up. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I hope. I think that's that's one of the things that when Marianne and I started this podcast, we want to talk about things that people haven't heard of so that people learn more, whether it's about yeah. specific species. I think species. that's fair. You know, when I listen to other podcasts, I want to listen so I can learn new things. I don't want to listen to things you know, I already know. So. Yeah. We're not, I mean, just spoiler, we're not going to talk about lions and elephants on this show, people. Because <laughs> you get enough of that propaganda. Um, unless uh, unless they reintroduced lions in southern Iraq, we're not going <laughs> to be talking about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, 
species like, and I'm not like, I mean, I've worked with lions and lions are one of my favorite animals because they are amazing, but, um, you know, the, and they, species like that act as, as great, whatever poster children for conservation and stuff. But all these other species, like, I mean, what percentage of our listeners have heard of an addicts before? More, I mean, not that people need to know every single species that exists on the planet, but these animals are way more endangered. They're extinct in the wild, scimitar horned orcs, and people have never heard of them. But we're yeah. like worried about ele- elephants more than you know, these species that we've already exactly. destroyed. And it's, it's just it, this like, I don't know, modern popular propaganda that supports that kind of stuff is not logical. And it just gets me fired up. Yes. Um, Okay. Um, One, actually, two pieces of news left. This one, I just wanted to just do a quick little shout out because I just saw it this morning and I found it really interesting. Um, There was just a paper published uh, by some scientists from Stanford University. They put a tag on a blue whale that had like electrodes for measuring um, physiological data, like heart rate. And for the first time ever, they were able to see how blue whale heart rate changes as they're foraging and as they're diving. And so first of all, obviously we know blue whales are the biggest animals ever, but you never really think about like a blue whale heart. Well, a blue whale heart is like, bigger than me it's like the size of like a dunk tank yeah exactly they're the kind you want for a boyfriend they have such a big heart you know (laughs) they're all heart because i just like get lost in the uh the canals of the heart yeah exactly but anyways it that's a that's an impressive organ and so this tag was able to measure the heart rate right heart rate as they dove and they found that the heart rate lowered as they dove and it got down to as low as two beats per minute which is insane because you know they're going down and they're feeding and so they're requiring this energy where they have to kind of have this push as they get the krill yet they're able to do this with a super low heart rate um most of the time it was a little bit more than that um but the lowest they recorded was um two beats and then two beats per minute. And then as it went to the surface, you know, it's going to breathe. It's heart rate increased to a maximum of 37 beats per minute, which is like the researcher said, this is probably the physiological limit maximum, the physiological limit that a heart this big could fat heart. This big could be 37 per minute per minute. I mean, you just think of the effort and the, um, just, it's beating pretty slow and so as they're getting to the surface they are trying to to breathe and um get ready to prepare for another dive and so that's why they think that that the heart is beating a lot faster as they get up to the top as they're sort of reoxygenizing in preparation for another dive so anyways that's just a really cool paper that just came out and i just saw the headline about it and it's amazing that these tags you know it's these tags they just it's like a suction cup that goes on like you've seen them putting like a camera on on some documentary 
but it's able to measure the heart rate and it does it for, um, it was only on for like something like eight and a half hours, but they're able to get this, you know, really short-term data and describe this kind of thing that's never been known before. That is pretty neat. Yeah. Talking about beating the heart. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I forgot the expression. <laughs> um, well, anyways, yeah. Blue whales are crazy. Um, did you have another? Another story. Um, do I have another story? I mean, there's all kinds of little things that I can think about, um, but I don't have a concrete you know, starting to kind of getting a little bit out of, um, uh, actually I do have a quick story, uh, for our viewers. Um, it's actually, I'm going to refer you to a new documentary that just came out. Um, so I'm, you know, for those who have listened to, especially on about a rewilding episode, something that, uh, an organization that uh, Joan and I really like, um, is rewilding Europe because they're of their solid model and they're all the things that they're doing. Um, they just came out with a documentary about their, uh, about the, the story of people in bison and the Southern Carpathians. So, uh, this is a story that goes back in, I think it was the release, what, 2014, if I'm not mistaken. I think that mm-hmm. they released some bison in 2014 in the, so, uh, yeah. the, t- the town of Artemish uh, in southern, the southern Carpathian, so in Romania. Um, and so this is a really cool documentary. If you look it up, it's called Zembrul, which is, that's the Romanian word for uh, bison. So if you just look it up, it's on uh, YouTube. It's free. It's about nine minutes or so. It's really, really interesting. Um, I've been kind of trolling the <laughs> southern... <laughs> Southern wait, uh, Southern Carpathian Rewilding Europe page asking them like, when is this coming out? When is this coming out? Um, and they've been very, very, ha- very nice to me, telling me it was going to come out at this date and whatnot. Um, and then they blocked it, it for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're like, who is this guy? Um, no, and it's really, really interesting talking about how the. And excuse me, it's not Artemis, it's Arnimish, Arminish, uh, in Southern, uh, Southern, uh, Southern Romania. Um, it's uh, it's really neat because they talk about how the city or the town of Armenish pretty much with the mayor embraced the idea and now how the economy of the local town is embraced for ecotourism and you know you have local artisans making things of bison and whatnot and everyone's pretty much behind it and then even you know they talk about the negative sides or what can be perceived as a negative side from a human point of view you know like depredation of crops and things like that from bison and being trampled down and then so they talk to people about it and so they're not just like blindly talking about everything that's positive talk about everything that can also happen when you do this and so it was neat because you can see that there's some you know understandable upsetness but general overall the people are accepting of the animals being there which is really cool and i mean it's just so neat to see these it's really well done um you know interviewing people that live in the community the biologists that were involved and so on and so forth uh so look it up zembrul uh, that's z-i-m-b-r-u-l uh so yeah check it out Awesome. Yeah, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Sounds good. Um, Okay, wrapping up one more uh, piece of news that I I don't think that Mariana Mariana and I discussed this in a podcast before, but we should have. So in 2016, there was this bipartisan federal bill that was introduced to the House of Representatives here in the United States um, that was intended to provide money for research and conservation of non-game species, um, but it died and it's been reintroduced and died. 
you know, it's had a couple iterations since, but it was just, its latest iteration was just introduced to the house again in July 2019, and it's called Recovering America's Wildlife Act, or RAWA for short, and um, as of about a month ago, it was still in committee in the house, which is where they're sort of hashing out, you know, details and language of this, but basically this act is designed to amend the current Pittman-Robertson Act in the United States, and that act allocates uh, firearms tax, it, or it put an extra tax on firearms, and that tax goes to state fish and wildlife agencies for research and management of game animals, so animals that are hunted. And so, of course, the great bias, particularly in the United States, is is towards game animals, and you know, most <laughs> almost all the species that. Our game animals are doing fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because we've done all this, and so there's there's very little funding to focus on these species that are declining that are non-game. And so the Recovering America's Wildlife Act would allow $1.4 billion annually to go towards state and tribal nations agencies for research and conservation of, of non-game species, particularly non-game species that the states have listed as species of greatest conservation concern. So not they're not in it doesn't have to be species from the Endangered Species Act, um, but species that declines have been noticed and they've been put into this um category of, of conservation concern. Um the currently the agency state agencies only receive about a measly, relatively a measly sixty million dollars annually for non game work um, under what's called state wildlife grants. So that's $60 million like total for all <laughs> all the agencies. And when you split that up, it's not a lot. Um, and so this $1.4 billion from RAWO will be split up into $97.5 million going towards tribal nations and then $1.3 billion going towards state agencies and territories. Uh, and then 10% of this pot of money can go towards species from the Endangered Species Act or that are listed under the Endangered Species Act because they get their own um, funding from Section 6 of the Endangered Species Act, which Mariana and I will be talking about shortly in an upcoming episode. Um, the only downside about RAWA is that, some, you know, this is sort of the question, you know, okay, that's, that's awesome, $1.4 billion, but where the heck is that money going to come from? And <laughs> that's it's, the question. Yeah, it's going to come from offshore energy and onshore uh, mineral extraction. So it's it's basically dirty money. <laughs> you know, these things that we we don't like occurring in the environment, whether they are considered responsible or not. Um, and, you know, it was very difficult because this was my first question. Whenever I hear about stuff like this, OK, well, where is that money coming from? I could only find one article that actually explicitly said that this is where the money was coming from, which is concerning to me because, I mean, it's the reality of what this bill is going to do. And there, it's like, I mean, I don't know if it's intentional that they're not putting it or if everyone's just so blinded by like the optimism the, of this yeah. that they're not. Ooh, uh. Yeah. So they just don't put it in news articles. But there was only one article from the Wildlife Society that actually mentioned 
and it was it was an older article from when a previous iteration of this bill was introduced um so it's just something to to consider um you know it's i think it's great that these industries will be having to provide money that goes towards conservation but um sort of like a a catch-22 situation you know yeah but nonetheless i mean it would it would it's gonna be it's gonna be huge (laughs) (laughs) gonna be mental it's gonna be mental (laughs) if it if it passes like i said it's still a committee um so well thank you jonah for having me on uh, this podcast again always a pleasure yeah thanks for joining and uh bringing some some cool news i feel like we we talked a lot about unglets today (laughs) (laughs) somehow subconsciously it always makes its way into the conversation yeah (laughs) Yeah. all paths lead to unglets (laughs) oh that makes me think we can make a great meme about that you know like you know those ones it's like uh, this person, and then it goes like to me, and then they're like a thought bubble of what they're thinking. We should definitely make <laughs> yeah, one with yeah, yeah. ungulates. Yep, always. It's just like a picture of like different types of hooves. <laughs> oh, that's what you know the the one the meme with the three people. Like there's one guy and two girls, and the, you know the guys turning back looking at that girl. We could put it like oh, me yeah. looking at ungulates. <laughs> yeah, and like then the thing and then that the, the girl woman that... looking at the boyfriend. It's like the content of the show. <laughs> yeah, like or the conversation, and then but you're really looking back at wanting to talk about ungulates or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we copyrighted that. Our listeners, you can't you can't steal that. We copyrighted. <laughs> or someone make it and send it to us because I don't oh, know yes, how to make yeah, that. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, well, thanks for listening. And again, thanks for joining me, Camden. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs>